Well, again, we're so glad that you are here this morning uh, with us. My name is Nathan. I'm the campus pastor here. Uh, it's good to be together. Uh, we, if, if you're newer here this morning, we've been in the midst uh, of a little bit of a, kind of an unusual uh, series for us. We're in week five of, of six, talking about this idea of neighborly love, uh, but looking at it from kind of a broader perspective. Um, we're going to be in, in Matthew, and we'll spend a lot of time in Matthew coming up here in, in a, a few weeks. Uh, but we're still kind of wrestling with this idea of how our work, that's kind of been the main theme, right? Um, how our, our work, whether you get paid for it or not, uh, is one of the primary ways in which you and I love our neighbors, the way we love the people around us. And, and to help us through this, this series, we've uh, shown a handful of videos uh, of folks within our congregation uh, to just give a, a picture of what this looks like in, in all kinds of different, of different vocations. Uh, before we jump into the message this morning, let's, let's watch another one of those videos. When I transitioned from full-time work to being a full-time, you know, at-home parent, that, that part of the transition wasn't as difficult as I thought it would be. I actually think being a full-time parent at times has gotten harder. And so the decision to stay home and the sacrifices that that entailed, be it financial, um, you know, I mean, we don't live near our families at all and primarily because you know, we made the choice for me to stay home and to follow Troy's career. My name is Erin Davig, and my family and I, we've been coming to Christ Community for the past three years. I think as you get, you know, further into it, you know, I'm, what, 12 years almost into being a full-time stay-at-home mom, it, um, that's when I think you kind of start going, did I make the right choice? Is this, because you, I, there are no guarantees in any career, and I do realize that, but especially I think as a mom, I think we think going into it, like, oh, I'm gonna do this, 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 and the outcome will be this great thing, this great kid. And there are no guarantees in parenthood, which is probably one of the most terrifying things about it. I could not be a parent without a relationship with the Lord. And, and that sounds so big, you know, like a relationship with the Lord, and I think especially as I'm getting older and with my kids, trying to talk about that. It's a very normal thing, like having it be kind of your chief operating system of a computer, that that, that is where I want to spring from in, in every single part of my life. It's not like, oh, we go to church on Sunday and that's when, we, that's when we're Christians, you know? It should just, it, it's infused, it's the marrow in your bones, it's every part of you and how you operate. Does that mean you're going to make mistakes every day, all the time? And I think the only way as a parent that I can keep getting up in the morning without feeling like, oh my gosh, I just want to put my head under the covers, is I just, I know God's grace covers every feeling of mine as a parent. I'm so grateful for that because I am so flawed. I'm such, you know, we all are. We're all just a big messes, you know? And we have such weaknesses. We can't be everything to everybody. And so I'm just grateful that I'm like, I know that even in my feelings as mom, that God is big enough to take that feeling and make it into something really beautiful. And so trying to hold on to the truth in the midst of it, it's, it's formidable, but it's worth it. Because when you do, that's when you're in flow. And that's when you have that peace that surpasses all understanding and you know it's all going to work out. Eventually, it will all work out the way it was meant to.
Please pray with me. God, I'm so thankful for the many uh, vocations represented in this room. Uh, those who get paid and those who don't. God, those who stay at home and those who, who go to school or are in the office or are retired but contribute in a variety of ways. God, you have called us since the very beginning of our creation as humans, right in Genesis 1, uh, to be contributors to this world, uh, co-creators along with you. And so, God, I pray that we'd be faithful to do that as we love and serve you um, and also as we love and serve our neighbors. And God, now as we enter into this, this new subject for this morning, a difficult one, it's so complex. God, I pray that you'd give us uh, ears to hear, give us hearts eager to change, including mine. God, I pray that you would speak to me, um, change me, even, even as you speak uh, here through me. And God, we pray that you would uh, show us who you are through Jesus, and that you have both uh, forgiven us uh, because, of our, our, uh, because of what he's done. You've forgiven us for our shortcomings, but you've also called us and enabled us um, to do the work and to be a part of the work um, that you've always been a part of, of bringing redemption. And so it's with joy uh, that we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Many of you know this about me, but I, I, love, I love Kansas City. Um, I, I've, I've loved Kansas City for years, but certainly, I mean, this... Yeah, that's a highlight, right? Uh, for many of us, if I think of all the highlights, all the things that I've loved over the years about Kansas City, this, this is certainly, certainly one of them. Yes, we were there, uh, our family, in the midst of all of that chaos with 800,000 of our closest friends. Um, how, many of you, how many of you went to that or part of that? What were we thinking, right? I mean, it's insane. It's, I mean, it's just crazy to think. You know, I kind of, I, I, I can't tell exactly if that's us, but I'm, that's generally, generally where we were. I just wanted to make sure that I, we squeezed into the group photo. Um, uh, but it was, it was insane, right, to, to think about what, what that was, but we couldn't resist just spending uh, the day in the heart of this city that we love. And maybe this is heresy for some of you, but it's, it's not because we love baseball that much or because we love the Royals. I mean... I mean, don't get me wrong, right? I actually uh, overheard my own voice on one of Kelly's videos, um, hoping this wouldn't be captured for posterity, but of, of me yelling essentially, we love you, Salvi! Um, so I, I mean, I did, I did get into it a little bit. Um, you were yelling it too, even if you're at home on TV. You were, come on, um, who doesn't love that guy? Uh, but that's, that's not the primary reason we went. For us, it's more because we just, we love our city. I love the fact that God has called us to this place to make our home, to, to be a place of investment and long-term service and, and engagement and, and for the, the flourishing of all within our city as, as well as you know, for the outworking of, of the good news of, of Jesus. I, I, love, I love that he's done this. And as I, as I stood there, uh, unified with that many strangers, I marveled over the home uh, that God has placed me in. A sea of blue. With every, you know, everybody had something in common that day, right? Um, something so simple to bring an entire city together. It's not a memory we'll, we'll quickly forget. And I don't, I don't want to make light of that or like quickly just kind of push that to the side because this, this has been a big week for our city. And I hope, I hope you're proud of our city in the midst of all of this. There's, there's a lot to celebrate and rejoice in that happened here uh, in this place. Uh, and and we're, we're thankful for that. And I don't, want, I don't want to make light of any of that. And yet I had this really sort of stark um, experience because we left all of that unity and joy and celebration and to, to try to find our way home without too much of the traffic, uh, we ended up very quickly driving on Prospect and, and Troost and the Paseo. Um, and instantly, right, we were reminded of how divided our city uh, still is. Uh, 
that we are fundamentally broken and fragmented and that no amount of blue can possibly fix all that. I mean, did you know, for example, that sociologists from all over the nation come to study Kansas City? Not, not the Royals, not barbecue, uh, but to study how divided we still are as a city, racially, economically, educationally. Uh, that in many ways is a result of the, the, the housing development codes of the last century, law, laws that are no longer in place and yet uh, establish these, these communities, these neighborhoods where now poverty reigns that, that makes it so difficult because of those old housing codes. It makes it so difficult for those folks to ever actually be able to, to, move, to move out. And you add to that the lack of accreditation in our own cities, public schools. Now, I sensed all this driving home, you know, draped in blue and fully exhausted. Um, driving from there to here, right? Safe, beautiful Olathe. I, I love Olathe. I love living here. I love that my kids are in some of the best schools in the country. I love the Olathe public schools. And I don't, I don't feel bad about loving this place. But do you ever feel that tension? I mean, for example, this happened about a month ago. Um, Eden, uh, our daughter, she's in first grade, uh, she was writing out musical notes. And, and I love that, that our, in our schools are teaching her to read both music and, and, and English. And those of you who know me, you know I'm, I'm a little bit cynical, and so I also, you know, very quickly jumped to other things in, in the midst of even my joy in her learning to read that. And I instantly, as soon as I saw it, I said, I said to Kelly, um, Eden, our daughter, she gets to learn how to read music. But there, there are schools in our city, like not some other foreign place, like in our home city that can't even teach enough of their kids how to read simply because they were fortunate enough to be born in my home. And I was fortunate enough to be born in my parents' home. And I have privileges offered to me, opportunities that those who live even just a few miles from here will, will never receive. Did you know as well with that, it's just an interesting fact that researchers can actually pinpoint with a reasonable amount of accuracy uh, the future projected needs of prisons based on fourth grade reading levels. That if you, if you don't learn how to read well by fourth grade, there's a good chance, a much higher chance, that later on in life you'll be incarcerated. Chance skyrockets. All right, now hold up, deep breath, okay? I'm not trying to pin all of this guilt on us, okay? I'm not trying to get us to feel bad for living in the burbs, right? Or, or take away uh, the joy that we've experienced as a city this past week. Certainly not. Nor do, I, nor do I pretend to offer, like, really simple answers to these ridiculously complex scenarios. I don't know what the answers are. But I do know that loving your neighbor means loving the vulnerable. Loving your neighbor means loving the vulnerable. And as I, as I mentioned, we're in this, this series, right? It's kind of a unique spot for us called Neighborly Love talking about the importance of, of work and economics and how uh, work is a, is a good thing, that making money can be a good thing, creating and sustaining jobs, right, is, is a good thing. And yet at the same time, we all, we all know the abuses, right? How quickly the powerful prey upon the weak, that even entire businesses and organizations can exploit those around them, their customers or their, their, you know, their um, employees, right? We know examples of entire systems working against the flourishing of the vulnerable. We know that it happens. 
Yes, we've, we've called the free market the best bad system there is. That's because we know the abuses, don't we? And when the Bible talks about injustice, it almost always refers to economic injustice. I mean, almost exclusively, right? If there's injustice happening, there's economics somehow involved, whether it's money or, or stuff or, or a servant, you know, it's, there's some sort of, it's tied, it's tied together. And it's very easy for us to forget, or maybe you just didn't even know this, that, that one of the primary reasons God's people, the Israelites, were kicked out of their land, were forced into exile, was because of their exploitation, their forgetfulness towards their own poor. They turned aside, they looked the other way, Kind of a big deal. And so the prophet Amos, that's where we're at this morning. Uh, Amos, uh, it's hard to find. Just go to the table of contents. Look it up. Better off if you have a Bible. Otherwise, you know, take the easy, easy way. Uh, it'll be on the screen. It'll be on the screen as well. Uh, but the prophet Amos, he, he writes uh, to, to warn God's people of the impending judgment that's coming upon, upon them. And we'll see here, if you want to love your neighbor, you've got to see the vulnerable first. You've got to be the vulnerable, and then you also have to stand with the vulnerable. See them, be them, and stand with them. Okay, so let's, let's take a look at this. First, you've got to see the vulnerable. But who are the vulnerable? Well, it depends, doesn't it? I mean, it's different in, in any society or, or group. And it can be small, small groups, right, and cliques, or it can be large, you know, entire nations. Uh, who the vulnerable is. But the easiest definition of the vulnerable are those who are least likely to flourish. Those in any society, in any context, in any set of relationships who are least likely to flourish. And so you can be vulnerable because of your age, young or old or unborn. You can be vulnerable because of your language or race or gender or marital status. You can be vulnerable because of the neighborhood or country that you live in, etc. Right? There's, I mean, on and on. There's no end to the list of potentials for vulnerability. And truth be told, one of the one of the nice parts of living out in the suburbs, you don't have to see that many of them if you don't want to. Right? Uh, it's it's easy to sort of shield our eyes to to block out what's what's happening around us, as if that might possibly get us off the hook. But Amos won't let us miss it. Because like us, Amos is writing a time of great economic prosperity. Things are, things are pretty good for those with power, which that'd be, that'd be us, right? And when things are going well for the powerful, it's really easy to forget, forget the forgotten. But this unlikely shepherd... I love that about Amos. He's just a shepherd, right? He's like this normal guy. He's got a book of the Bible named after him, but he's, he's simply a shepherd who stopped long enough to notice how broken reality was around him and spoke up about it. He said, this, it, it, it can't be this way anymore. And it isn't just, notice this as, as we read, okay? It isn't just individuals. It's entire systems designed to keep the rich rich and the poor poor. Okay, so look at chapter five. Um, I'm going to read beginning in verse 10. He says, They hate him who reproves in the gate, and they abhor him who speaks the truth. So essentially, what, if anyone speaks against injustice, they're hated, right? Which makes sense, right? Nobody likes to be you know, told they're doing something wrong. And then he, he goes on. He says, Therefore, because you trample on the poor, 
and you exact taxes. Again, not individuals, but system. That's taxes, right? You exact taxes of grain from the poor. You have built houses of hewn stone, but you shall not dwell in them. You have planted pleasant vineyards, but you shall not drink their wine. For I know how many are your transgressions and how great are your sins, you who afflict the righteous, who take a bribe and turn aside the needy in the gate. And the gate was a place of communal gathering, right? A place of, of economic activity. It was the marketplace is a, a hub of, of, of that kind of, you know, is a, a public spot, right? And, and so this isn't, this isn't one person taking from one other person, like the story of the Samaritan, right? We talked about that a few, a few weeks ago. This is a group of the powerful redefining justice to only benefit themselves, which, I mean, who here is thankful that never happens again, right? But we've, we've graduated past that as a side. We can check that sucker off the list, right? Are you kidding me? See it at every turn, don't we? This still happens. And yet for many of us, I think maybe even evangelicals in particular, we tend to, to blame poverty uh, on one or two reasons. Because we like to be able to blame it on something, right? It feels, feels better to know why it's happening but typically, I think we, we go in one of two directions. It's either personal responsibility um, or it's systemic injustice. As if, like, you know, we have to choose between the two. Uh, and certainly the Bible talks a lot about individual responsibility, right? And we talked about that last week as we looked at some of these Proverbs about laziness, that yes, there are those who are in poverty because they are sinful, right? They are sinfully lazy, right? And they've, they've brought it on themselves. That does happen. But Amos, he doesn't leave it there. And ni- neither can we. There are also entire systems, including in our city, that contribute to the vulnerability of the vulnerable. It's these systems that Amos is addressing. I mean, even even the word itself, uh, the the, the main Old Testament word for the poor can also be translated and and interchanged with the wrongfully oppressed. I mean, that's that's how married these two concepts are in the Hebrew mindset. Because most often in their, in, their, in their world, if you're poor, there's a good chance there's some sort of oppression against you. And if there's some sort of oppression against you, there's a really good chance that you're poor. And so these things often go hand in hand. And this is where, uh, I'm going to throw somebody else under the bus here. Uh, Tim Keller, he's a pastor in, in New York and somebody who's, who's widely respected uh, among a broad variety of, of Christians. Um, and I'm throwing him under the bus because he says that this is where both liberals and conservatives uh, get it wrong both those on the left and on the right. Because uh, conservatives tend to define poverty primarily as personal failure. They've done something to, to cause the, their situation. And so then attempts to help, we, we still want to help, but the attempts to help then come across as either patronizing or, or paternal, but not really all that helpful. They continue to cycle, uh, continue the cycle of poverty. Uh, liberals, on the other hand, see it primarily in, in systemic, systemic oppression, right? That there's, there are systems at work here. And so oftentimes then uh, attempts to help come across as, you know, angry or short-sighted or, or possibly even, even naive. And so if you think about it, like one blames the poor for everything, the other blames the rich for everything, and we wonder, like, why we can't actually help anybody as a society. Why these, these systems and these, these things continue on over and over and over and over and over again in our, in our culture. Is it any wonder we're so lousy at helping? Let me, because we talked about the laziness side last week, let me talk, let me give a couple examples of, of systemic injustice. Just to kind of give us a picture of this. Um, 
Uh, one example, a leading Peruvian economist, widely respected um, uh, globally, um, did a, a recent study in Lima, Peru. That's, that's where he's from. Uh, on what it, would, what it would take for an average impoverished person to get a, a business license. You know, if that, if that individual wants to get his family out of poverty, right? Start a business and figure out a way to make it work and make an income and, and finally get himself and his family out of poverty, what, what it would take. And uh, the research discovered that it took one person six hours a day, 289 days, and cost $1,300, which is three years' salary in that economy to get a business license to work his family out of poverty. I mean, you, I mean, hopefully, right, you see, right, you don't have to be a business owner or an entrepreneur to see that there's something that's going to, it's just not possible, it's not going to work. And then if you, you add to that the lack of property rights in the majority of the developing world, that people, people don't own property, they don't own the places in which they live, I mean, it's something that's so normal for us, we don't even know how anything could function otherwise, but that's part of the reason of the po poverty, because if you don't own property, you can't get a business loan. You don't have any collateral to put up. And so this continues the cycle. And you look at this, and this is not just Peru. This is in many countries in the developing world, both, both the inability to actually start a business as well as, as the inability to own property to get enough capital to be able to start a business. I mean, when this happens, you can't, there's not like one person that you can blame and just like, let's just get rid of this guy and start over. I mean, it's this entire system, right? That for centuries has continued the oppression, even if on accident, of people over and over and over again, keeping them in poverty. So then a bit closer to home, uh, you know, it's an example that I, I, I don't have any ability to even imagine what this is like. I mean, we can try, right? We can do our best, but most of us, most of us have no idea what this must be like. But imagine growing up in a home where you have, in your family tree, your history, you have 250 years of slavery. You've got 90 years of Jim Crow You've got decades of housing regulations that have led to massive neighborhoods that are fully characterized by poverty and crime. You've got lots of attempts to help, most of which have been little more than demoralizing, right, and keeping people in that cycle of poverty. You've got a failing educational system. And so you've been told all of your life, and your parents have been told all of their lives, and your grandparents, and your great-grandparents, and your great-great-great-grandparents that your life doesn't matter. I mean, imagine what that must be like. I mean, maybe, maybe in working with kids, maybe you've had a conversation with someone and you, and you know that they're getting, a, ch a child is getting that impression from their, their parents that, that what, it's just not that important, right? And you see, you see how damaging that is in just this one relationship. Imagine centuries of that, generationally. And to simply blame a system, right, is, is naive, it's short-sighted, it's not going to fix it, but to only blame personal responsibility is shamefully inadequate. These issues are deeply complex. We can't, we can't hold only one to the exclusion of the other. It really is easier just to close your eyes, isn't it? Move out to the burbs. Are we looking for the overlooked? For the vulnerable? And not just for them, of, of seeing them. I mean, that's, that's part of it. Seeing them, getting to know them, hearing their stories, understanding why they're in the situation they're in and what it's like for them. As someone without power, without resources, what that must be like. 
but also not just see them, but see, see the, the complexity around them, right? There's, there's not easy answers. And this, this kills us, right? Because again, for those of us who have had power or, or education or money all of our lives, we just want to know what the problem is so we can fix it, right? And to, to be able to fix the problem, it's got to be a simple problem. So we try to reduce everything as small as we can and say, well, if we do that, then it's, it's fixed and we're fine and we can all, we can all just move on because that's, that's what we want to do. You've got, you've got to allow for the complexity. These issues are ridiculous, right? There aren't easy answers to any of this. They, make our, they, should, they should make our minds spin if we truly see the vulnerable where they are. Again, I, I love the suburbs. I don't want to live anywhere else, okay? Just for the record. But I know how easy it is from my suburban vantage point to just be blissfully oblivious to so much pain and suffering in our city, even in our community, right? You don't have to look that far and certainly across our world. Are we looking for it? For many of us, that starts close to home. And there are vulnerable people who live on your street. Of course, there. Of course, there are. They live in your live in your neighbor. There are vulnerable people on the playground, kids in your in your school and and in, in your office places. There are there are vulnerable people for a lot of reasons everywhere. But don't don't stop with our neat little bubbles, right? You got to look beyond that to see these pockets of deep pain. You know, we often judge a community based on who we see flourishing. But I think maybe a better judge is how we see the vulnerable being treated and uplifted. The first step is to see it. Second step, that's to fix it, right? That's, that's where we jump, right? Again, that's where we want to go. It's like, I just want to know how to fix it. Uh, and if that's, if that's where you're at this morning, you're going to be really frustrated with this message. You're probably frustrated already. You're going to be even more. That's where we go. And that, that, that attitude often in these areas of, of vulnerability and poverty often causes more harm than good of just let me go in and rescue. The reality is, first, we see the vulnerable. vulnerable. Second, second, we've got to be the vulnerable. We have to recognize our own vulnerability and need. It's not just broken people and systems that need fixing. I'm also part of the problem. I also need someone to fix me and to make me whole. And until we recognize our own desperation, any attempt to help will likely cause more harm than good. And so for the people that Amos addresses here, um, I mean, they are, they're blissfully unaware of how vulnerable they are. They don't, they don't have any idea of how much trouble they're in. And so Amos, like, like a good prophet, is going to tell them, right? And he does, verse 18, for example, he says, Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light. Okay, let me, let me just stop there because that may mean nothing to you. Let me kind of explain what's happening there. Uh, basically, what Amos is saying is, well, I mean, the, the people of Israel, like, they are God's people. And so uh, they, are, they, they can't wait for God's judgment, right? Because they're, they're his people. Like, when, when God comes to judge, when the day of the Lord comes, we're going to be with, with him victorious because we're, we're, we're his people and we're that awesome, right? But Amos is saying, um, actually, when, when God's judgment comes, he's coming for you. You're the ones that God is coming for, is, is, is what he's saying. So uh, keep that thought. Uh, and because God says, verse 21, uh, I hate, I despise your feasts. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Then all your sacrifices, he goes on to there. Verse 23 then. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I'm sick of all your piety, God says. All your cute little good works, your nice little 
church services and your pretty songs. God is saying, I'm, I'm sick of your attempts to, to show that you actually care, that there's a relationship here. What do I want? What I want is to, for you to let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Oh, they have no idea how vulnerable they are. And maybe you're thinking, and, and, and rightfully so, and I, I'm, I'm right with you here, it's easy at this point to think, well, that's not us, right? That's those people, and that's their problems, and they're, they're doing all this stuff. We're not doing those things, and I get that. For most of us, we're, we're nowhere to be found, right, in this stuff. We're not, we're not doing these things. And yet, and this is, this is truthfully what I kind of hate about Amos, uh, he's po- poking at two different kinds of injustice through, all throughout the book. The, the first kind, that's the obvious one. That's the direct exploitation of those who are vulnerable. And some of you are doing that. You may, not, you may not realize that, but some of you are using your power directly to oppress those who are vulnerable around you. It's really not that hard to do if you have any, any sort of strength, right? Happens all the time in certain homes, right? Um, yeah, with, with kids, you see that, don't you? Um, some of us are doing that. If that's, if that's you, um, stop, right? I mean, that, that's the first application in, in, this, in this, uh, this message here. Um, whether that's your little sister because she's smaller than you, whether, whether that's your friend because she's less attractive than you, uh, whether it's the people that you work with because they have less power than you, if you're taking advantage of those who have less or are somehow in society's eyes less, Amos says, you better stop. And I wish that was all he said, right? Because for most of us, most of the time, that's it's like we can you know, check it off a list and feel pretty good about ourselves. He doesn't leave it there. And this, this is where he kicks me, frankly. Because Amos also condemns those who benefit from the exploitation of the weak. Like, like, they're not the ones doing it, but they receive a nice little kickback from it. And most of us have no idea, no idea the ways that we benefit from the injustice of others. I mean, truthfully, this is why I kind of hate preaching a message like this. Uh, not just because of all the emails I'll probably get this week. Um, Thank you for those, by the way. Um, no, if we, can, we can talk. It's all, it's all good. Uh, but it's not just that. It's because I don't want to know, frankly. I don't, I don't want to know the ways in which I am, in, I am complicit or somehow benefiting from the injustice. I, I would prefer to be ignorant. Because right? once you know, then you, you, can't, just, you can't just know, right? Because most of us, there are ways in which we're just either completely unfeeling or even complicit and certainly benefiting from the injustice of others. Let me give, let me give an example. This is a fun one for everybody. Um, immigration, right? Uh, listen to this quote um, from the New York Times. It says, there are many ways to de- debate immigration. Yeah, absolutely, right? But when it comes to economics, there isn't much of a debate at all. Nearly all economists of all political persuasions agree that immigrants, those here legally or not, benefit the overall economy. Which means you and I have more money in our wallets as a result of the immigrants, both legal and illegal, who live here. And how easy it is to turn aside to their exploitation. Because it doesn't get much easier than exploiting an immigrant. And we benefit. Let me, let me give you another example. And this might feel like a rabbit trail. I don't think it is. I think it's connected. Um, pornography. 
uh, for those of you who are entrenched in, in that mess. Uh, it feels victimless, right? Uh, and yet you have to realize that you're contributing to an entire trade, right? Um, the supply and the demand, that's, that's how it works. That fuels human trafficking. And so if you're, if you're up in arms about modern-day slavery, the first step is to say no to the sex trade that happens on your computer. That's, that's where it begins. Or even one more, if I haven't dug a deep enough hole for myself. Um, we live in Olathe, right? I love, I love Olathe. I didn't know this until this week. Olathe uh, means beautiful. There you go, fun fact. Um, but of course, I mean, we know, right, that it's taken from a language of people that no longer live anywhere near Olathe, right? Whose land we now own and we continue to benefit. Yeah, it was hundreds of years ago, but we still benefit from so many of those atrocities. And I realize there's, there's a, a wide variety of responses in here, um, even internally, and even as I speak, right? This is the third time for me, so um, loads of fun. But some of you are just mad, right? You're just mad at me, right, for bringing it up, and, or, or because you think I'm, I'm mishandling these, these issues or whatever, and that's, that's fine. Uh, but if you're, if you're more like me, you're mad and just like, I'm mad, but I don't know what to do, right? I don't, I don't know who I'm mad at. I don't know how to respond. And, and, and I mean, this, so we're talking about stuff that I, I, don't, I don't know how I oppress an immigrant. I don't, I don't know how I could possibly uh, feel like complicit in something that happened hundreds of years ago with slavery or the treatment of Native Americans. I mean, I don't, I don't know. And so it just makes me angry. And yet what I do know is that ignoring it doesn't help anything. That, that those who ignore their past are destined to repeat it. And we don't want to, we don't want to do that, any of that again, Right? And so if you're looking for a solution, I'm sorry, I don't, I don't have it. But ignoring it's not going to help anything. We have to own the fact that these things are in our history. They're, frankly, they're still in our present. And many of them will continue on in our future. So do you recognize how vulnerable we really are? I'm not as innocent as I think I am. Man, I need a savior. We are desperate, we're needy. Oh, I know the suburbs look nice, right? They're cute little houses, but you look, you look inside any one of our homes, any one of our hearts, and you see a poverty that lives there. It may be unique to that kind of poverty, but there's, we, ha- we have our own set of impoverishment, don't we? And frankly, if you're already feeling overwhelmed by this, I mean, you can join the club, but I think one of the most important next steps from this sermon, uh, if, if nothing else, right, uh, is not to, to go try to fix it, right? We'll get to that. I think there's some practical ways we, we ought to engage together and as a church. Uh, but for many of us, I think the next step is, is both to repent and lament. I mean, you see, you see your vulnerability. You see the exposure that it is uh, to repent over the ways that we're unfeeling, that we prefer to be unaware. Um, pr- pr- uh, repent of the ways that we're complicit in these kinds of injustice and certainly the ways that we are directly exploitative of others. And frankly, maybe even more important is to lament. Because again, I want to fix it. I want to do something but I don't know how, but at the very least, to cry out with those who are vulnerable, to cry out to God on their behalf. We, we rush to solutions, but before we can solve anything, we have to weep with the broken, to cry out over the 3,000 abortions that happen every day in the United States, 3,000 every day, to cry out of the 105 murders that have happened in the greater Kansas City area this year. I think about 10 of them under the age of 16, 10 under the age of 16, uh, most of them in the usual neighborhoods. 
Maybe just to cry out over this guy in Peru, right, in other countries who just wants to find a way to support his family but can't do it. When we recognize our own vulnerability, we repent and we lament. And when we've begun doing that, only, only when we've begun doing that, only then are we ready to stand with the vulnerable. See them, be them, and stand with them. Back to verse 24. I read it once already, but here's the command of the text. Again, it says, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. It's got to begin individually first, right? Personally with, with each of us. Um, I think part of it is we, just, we have to care about people, even people we don't know, more than we care about saving a buck or making a buck, right? That's pretty hard for us, isn't it? It starts there, longing, longing for people to flourish who aren't like us. Uh, who we have nothing to do with, who we don't even necessarily see and, and maybe don't even like, but to actually long, to long for others to flourish, even those we disagree with. Tim Keller, uh, for example, he, I mentioned him a moment ago. He's a widely respected pastor in New York City. Um, he describes three levels of doing justice. Now, this, this isn't in Amos, okay? Um, I want to be clear there. So these are, these are his ideas, but I think they're, they're good ideas. And, and as we want to think about how do we engage practically, let me just mention these, these three ways that justice tends to be done um, or ought to be done. First is relief. Uh, that's the first level of, of justice, okay? That's like feeding the hungry, okay? Clothing the, the naked. It's, it's housing. It's homeless, right? Um, it's essentially, uh, it's a Band-Aid, Okay? It's not, it's not a solution, um, but yet sometimes, right, sometimes you just got to stop the bleeding before you can worry about the solution, right? And so it's not, it's not that it's, it's unimportant. Relief, relief is, is really important, um, but it can't end there because uh, relief makes it all about money, right? If we just give enough money, then it's, it's all going to be just, just fine, right? Um, which, unfortunately, I think this is where we evangelicals, and I'm putting myself in this camp, um, where we tend to stop because it's easy to just write checks, Right? And say, well, that's, I, I've done my part, and so I'm, I'm done here. But money is not the solution. Not, not ultimately. Uh, and that, that's widely uh, believed by economists of, of every stripe. One, one example of that is, is Oxford-trained African economist, uh, whose name I cannot pronounce, nor will I try to. Um, he's widely respected, but she argues that foreign aid is actually one of the main causes of continuing poverty in Africa. Like, as we continue to pour in, just say, like, here's all this money, um, that that's, that's part of the problem, actually. It's not less than money, but it's so much more than money when it comes to truly helping sustained over, over the long haul. Relief, relief isn't the answer. Um, it's not the final solution. It's a, it's a good place to begin. The second level, though, of doing justice is development. This is actually making things better so that relief money isn't needed anymore. Um, to make, make it, to, this is as simple and practical as tutoring the child who's not going to have help with his or her homework when he gets home from school, right? That's, that's development. It's, it's supporting a child in, from Compassion International where they're, 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 they're growing and being, being trained and t- taken care of and all the, I mean, it's, it's starting new businesses and particularly in, in low-income areas, right, where you're c- concerned about the development or, or even, you know, exploring housing codes and, and how city development takes place so that we don't repeat uh, the mistakes of the past, so the second is development. The third is social reform. And this is the long, slow work of changing laws, systems. This is what took William Wilberforce his entire life to do um, in England as he worked to abolish the slave trade. It took his whole life. 
Um, and yet his legacy continues, and that's spread on to the abolition of, of slaves uh, in our country uh, as well. This is, this is uh, creating better laws that fight against human trafficking, or at least make it harder, or, or make abortion more difficult. Laws that, that help that guy in Peru and in other countries start businesses. It's laws that protect immigrants and, and care for those who, who um, are impoverished or, or for minorities. So how will we stand with the vulnerable? Well, as a church, we want to be a part of all three of these, um, collectively and, and individually. I think that's really, really important. Um, I'd encourage you, both locally and globally, I'd encourage you to look at our website. You can see some of the great institutions that we partner with um, as a church uh, across our city and, and world that are engaged in these ways. It's also one of the reasons why we plant churches in neighborhoods, uh, because we want those neighborhoods to be cared for by those churches, right, and to continue to care for care for our city. We don't want to isolate ourselves from the problems of this world. We also don't want to make these issues all about politics, which is really, really easy to do this day and age, right? And I, and I realize that some of you, as, as you've heard these words, you've been processing them through the filter of your political lens, and I, I totally get that, but we, we, we've got to remember that these were uh, biblical issues long before they were political issues, that we're talking about fellow humans made in the image of God, and that when we come to our politics, um, we, don't, we, we don't let our politics uh, determine how we understand Scripture, right? I mean, that's, it should go without saying, um, but I don't think it does. Uh, but rather, our Scripture is what should determine our understanding of, of the political world in which we live. Um, so often, we, we reverse those. So one, one more simple next step. Um, Go back and, and watch the content from our, our Common Good conference um, from last month, CG 2015. That's all finally available uh, through Right Now Media, uh, our channel there. You should have received an email last night about how to access that. I'd encourage you to take, take a few hours, honestly, um, and sit in some of those stories, in some of those places, um, and hear a little bit about how our church is trying to engage with these, these really, really big problems. If you're only going to listen to two, let me just tell you, I know time is an issue, right? Um, listen to Brian Fickert's first talk. It was the best 45-minute discussion of poverty I've ever heard, ever. Uh, as well as uh, Stan Archie. He's our uh, he's pastor of, a, of our sister church um, in the inner city. Uh, he talks about his experience with race uh, in Kansas City. Start with those. Uh, they're all good, though. Uh, the reality is, uh, most of us here, most of us are flourishing. I mean, at least economically, right? Let's not be naive. Um, there are other areas in which we are deeply, deeply, deeply impoverished and broken, but most of us are flourishing economically. We have money, we have education, we have privilege. Essentially, what we have is power. And power is not a bad thing. But the question is, how are we going to use our power? Only for our own good or, f or also for the flourishing, for the good of others. Loving your neighbor means loving the vulnerable. But Why? Maybe we should have started there, I guess. Why do, we, why do we even care? Why do we bother? The problem's so big. It feels so hopeless, right? It's so complex. How, why, do we, why do we care? I mean, and frankly, if there's no God, then why not just take from the weak, right? Why not exploit those around us, hunker down just for the good of our, ourselves and for our, own, for our own people? Why not let the strongest win? Well, not only do we have a God who tells us very clearly to do otherwise, we also have a God who did this for us, who became vulnerable to save vulnerable people. That he entered into our world, that he essentially became 
our neighbor, right? He came into the world that, that he made to, to bring rescue. Like he sees us in our deep, deep impoverishment that, that because of our sin and guilt and shame for these issues and for a whole host of other ones, right? That there, there's no amount of relief or development or reform that could possibly save me. I'm, I'm that broken. And yet Jesus, he doesn't just stand with us. He stands for us. He stands in our place. He takes all the, the guilt and shame, everything that we've ever done wrong, he takes it upon himself and he, he suffered the very wrath of God for it and he gives us his goodness, his righteousness, his purity so that, that now our God can look at us and call us sons and daughters, that we don't just get a pass, but we're adopted into his family. And if, if this is true, this is our motivation, this is our, our joy, it's our strength, it's our power, it's the reason we can sacrifice even when it hurts, even when it doesn't always make sense. And thank God it's our forgiveness for when we fail and he's not done with us yet for Jesus didn't stay dead and he will come again and he will make it right and the works of justice and goodness and love and mercy and beauty that we begin he will finish because he's coming back and he will make it right so which side of justice will we be on Let's pray. God, I ask first for your forgiveness. God, for the many ways that I don't even, I don't even know how I'm benefiting. And for the ways that I'm complicit, or just unfeeling, God. I pray that you'd help us to know how to repent, how to, how to turn away from these things, how to label them for what they are as, as sin um, and know what it looks like to, to come out um, entrenched in systems that we have very little power sometimes to change. God, I, I pray that you even know what it, help us know what it looks like to, to feel these sins of our past as a nation, whether it's slavery or the treatment of Native Americans or, or ex exploitation of women or so, so many different things. God, I, I pray Help us to know how to feel it. And God, to, to turn away from it. And to be able to lament with those who are still hurting. God, give us tears. And God, I pray as well, so thankful for Jesus, that you, Lord Jesus, you've come You've not left us in our own vulnerability and poverty and sin, that you have come to rescue us and that because of what you have done, we can stand before you loved and accepted. So God, I pray that as, as we worship you now, God, I pray that we would feel both convicted as well as forgiven. We pray this in Christ's name.